You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit through your word tonight to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us. Amen. So, Pastor Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Counterfeit Gods, shares with us some very grim stories of events that were attached to the economic downturn back in 2008. And many of us who are maybe my age and younger remember that time as when our parents... Um, their retirement looked very grim. Some, some of our parents, their 401ks turned into 201ks. And uh, their plans for when they would retire uh, changed dramatically. Some of them had to work for five more years or ten more years, some for the rest of their life if they were in you know, a, a more dire financial situation. At least that was the situation for my parents. And it was a really funny time because it created a lot of panic. And uh, Keller summarizes that in the major financial centers of the world, like in New York, there followed a string of suicides. The acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, he hanged himself in his basement. And the chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, he shot himself in the head uh, in the back behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's leading families who had lost about $1.4 billion of his clients' money in the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. He slid his wrists and he died in his Madison Avenue office. And a Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank, he hanged himself in the wardrobe of his suite in London. A Bear Stearns executive took some drugs and jumped off of a, the 29th floor of his office building. And we all stand in disbelief and horror when we hear things like this. And the question is, what are we to make of it? Tonight's passage from Exodus 32 helps us get at the heart of why humans behave in this way. For some, it's a well-known scene. It's Israel and the golden calf. And while there appears to be a huge separation between 21st century executives leaping off buildings and primitive Israelites dancing around a 24-karat version of Chick-fil-A's mascot, we're going to hear from God's word tonight that the distance between those two things is actually pretty small. We've been walking through Exodus here at the 5 o'clock service, and we began by witnessing God liberate his people out of bondage from Egypt. After they were liberated out of Egypt, God took them into the wilderness and provided for them. He provided for them with water from the rock. And he provided for them with manna in the wilderness. And then Israel uh, went on further and God took their leader up a mountain called Sinai and gave that leader the law, what would reveal God's will and God's way for his people so that graciously God would make plain what he would have in this covenant relationship for Israel to do. And then just last week, the immediate action that happens before our scene 
with the golden calf, part of our story tonight, God confirms and he ratifies this covenant with Moses and Israel, the giving of the law and the sprinkling of the blood. Their promises were made. Israel made a covenant with God. And then our scene. See, the painful irony of this golden calf scene is the reality that no sooner did God give his people the law than they broke it. No sooner did God write on the very tablets, I mean, the irony, the situational irony of Moses carrying down these two tablets, and on one of them was written, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven image. And as Moses is walking down this mountain with Joshua, they hear laughter and singing because they're worshiping a graven image. He didn't even get down the mountain to fully declare this law. And Israel had already broken it. You know, forget calves for a moment. When you put it that way, that no sooner does God give his law to his people than we are found breaking it, don't you feel strangely described in that moment? Doesn't something ring true for you in that moment that says, gosh, that sounds a lot like me. The tension is actually summarized really well when we juxtapose two verses from our sections, the one from the previous action in chapter 24 and tonight's chapter in chapter 32. In chapter 24, it's amazing. You hear Moses declaring to the people of, of God their law, and as he's confirming this covenant, the people respond by saying this. And in the face of our passage tonight, it's pretty laughable. They say back in 24-7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And then we read, just moments later in chapter 32, God's apt description of Israel's next deed after making that promise. God says, They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. God, I will live for you. I'm going to get it right this time. I'm really going to turn it around. I'm laying it all down this time. I surrender all, Lord. They have turned aside quickly. Do you feel yourself described? Do you feel your journey, your connection or lack of connection to God described in this moment like I do? You know, there's one character in this story that really cracks me up, and it's Aaron. I don't think the text intends to be funny. Maybe it does, but I don't think it does. But it's really funny to me. Moses has been gone for about 40 days and 40 nights, and the people are probably thinking, the dude's dead. He was killed by a lion or fell off a cliff or got into a camel accident or something. And we need a new leader. We need a new plan, a new strategy. Aaron, what should we do? And Aaron's response is, Tell your wives to give me all their jewelry, right? Uh, and we don't realize that in the Bible we found the first great televangelist to exist, all right? The next part's funny too, verses 3 to 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Do you know how long that would take? 
The text goes by pretty fast, but have you ever tried to make something out of metal? Or have you watched one of those sped up YouTube videos of some of these craftsmen or craftswomen making something out of metal? You know, I wonder what was going on in Aaron's mind during those hours and hours of work as he's melting and hammering and melting and hammering. It's really enough time to think it through, to analyze it, to really know what you're doing what you're getting into. And he didn't just rush into this. And you know that Aaron knows what's going on when he's later interrogated by Moses in part of the chapter that we didn't read. Moses has Aaron by the collar and says, what in the world were you thinking? And Moses, or Aaron's response is this, hey, you were nowhere to be found. And so all these people, they started giving me their jewels and I threw it into the fire and out jumped this calf. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like one of my kids' explanation of something that they're totally guilty for, you know? It's like finding your kid saying, I didn't eat a cookie. Well, what's that all over your face, Aaron? What's that all over your face? The reality is, for you and for me, just as it was for Aaron and Israel, we can run and we can hide, but we don't stumble our way into breaking God's holy law. We don't stumble our way into sin. Get this. We worship our way into sin. You know, rebellion against God doesn't actually usually take the form of shaking your fists at God. It really takes the form of forgetting Him altogether and loving something else in His place. The axiom heard around the Advent that's been given to us by historian Ashley Knoll, summarizing the theology of Thomas Cranmer, says this, What the heart loves the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Whatever the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We don't stumble our way into sin. We worship our way into sin. You know, when the stock market imploded in 2008, some people were sorrowful, but others, obviously, from the stories I told, were in despair. The difference between sorrow and despair, as Tim Keller explains, is that sorrow is pain for which there are resources for consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others, so that if you experience, for instance, a career reversal, you can find your comfort in your family and get through it. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing an ultimate thing. See, idolatry is when something besides God becomes an ultimate thing. And when it does, if we ever lose that ultimate thing, we despair. And the only consolation for us in that moment is death. When a good thing like money becomes an ultimate thing and it's taken away, it's enough to send executives flying off buildings. The golden calf incident shows us a very specific and insidious form of idolatry that scholars call syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is when true religion, the worship of the one true and living God, is commingled and intertwined with untruths. When Aaron built the calf, the people cried, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. But then Aaron built an altar to this calf 
and committed a big no-no. He associated the calf with a very special covenant name of God, the one that God had given to Moses and his people. Aaron built the altar to the calf and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, to I am that I am. And that altar was being built to that golden calf that he was giving that name to. Oops, syncretism. The center of the issue for you and for me is that we're no better than Israel. You and I, until the day we die, will always be weaving ungodly concepts into our conceptions of God. And it's this reality, it's this syncretism that almost always sabotages and poisons the church's witness in the world. It's why you hear people understandably say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in religion. It's why I read funny and painful bumper stickers like, God, save me from your people. We could say that God calls the church to two principal things, one external and one internal. Externally out there, our call is to be witnesses of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Internally, though, in here, we might summarize the work of the church as ongoing, repeated, never-ending repentance from our syncretism. But this kind of repentance is incredibly uncomfortable because it means getting a little more honest about how we've made God into our own image. Maybe I, as a white Christian man, need to repent of being part of a system that for decades, maybe centuries, has depicted Jesus as a white European when he was most decidedly not and when those depictions have contributed to the harm of people of color. Maybe we as socially conscious people can repent of all too easily cheering on political candidates, conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat, as, God forbid, the Christian choice. Maybe there are some of us who have held on too tightly to a particular form or expression of the church as God's most holy and most perfect form. You know, cathedral Anglicanism. Liturgy, particular musical styles embedded in a cultural time and place. And yet, there are other ways that you and I make golden calves without even knowing it. Remember, idolatry many times is taking a good thing, a good thing, and making it an ultimate thing. Maybe there's something or someone in here who has made the life of the mind, the intellect, the ultimate thing. Maybe your intelligence has led you to some really dark places, far from the Lord. And you find yourself not only full of doubts, but very dry, feeling hollow and lost. Have you ever thought that maybe instead of doubting God, His existence, His goodness in the face of evil, and all those deep and important and complex questions, that you should doubt the doubts that have become your God? For college and grad students, I know very well the temptation to make your studies and time, uh, studies a time to form and to shape and fashion the God of your future, to throw all your eggs into the basket of your future career, 
your future monetary success or eventual prestige and the, the reputation that you might achieve. College is often the time when we really start learning how to worship these gods, to thrust the desires and the affections of our hearts toward that bright future. But as the 2008 business executives learned all too well, pouring your heart out on the altar of an ultimate thing that isn't God will always, always, always end in disaster. And so what is to be done for the syncretistic and idolatrous heart. If we have indeed worshipped our way into this mess, the only way out of it is worship as well. It will do no good for us to attempt to remove our idol from the throne of our heart, because as Keller has said, an idol can never be removed. It can only be replaced. It's what 19th century pastor Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. We need a vision of God so glorious, so beautiful, so arresting, so as to wake us up from the trance of our idol worship. You know, when Israel was on the brink of disaster, Moses stood in the breach and confronted the Lord in this dramatic moment. And the shocking thing about it is that God actually listens to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. Get out of the way, Moses. It's time for me to justly render judgment. But Moses... He implored to the Lord, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Remember, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented. Moses mediated between God and his people, and appealed to the promises of God. And God relents. You see, God knows full well that for you and for me, another Sinai would never do the trick. You and I don't need the revelation of more law, more rules to get on the right path. We already know that no sooner would God give us the decree, thou shalt have no other gods before me, than we'd fashion a more fitting God for ourselves. It's why when Jesus came, he explicitly said that he didn't come to give us more law, but to fulfill it. And unlike Moses, instead of climbing up a huge mountain to meet with God in the fire and receive the law, Jesus stumbled up a hill outside of Jerusalem with a cross on his back to face the fire of God alone, to receive the just punishment that all of our law-breaking would render, that God's wrath might burn hot against him and consume him so that law-breakers and idolaters like you and like me could be forgiven and free. Fellow idolaters, would you gaze with me for a little while at the cross 
of the one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ? Would you ponder his labor? Would you behold his love? Would you allow your heart again to be melted by the man who labored on that cross? How long? Long enough for your sin to be paid for in full. And then this man, Jesus, rose from the dead and ascended into heaven in order to stand in the breach and forever appeal to the promises secured for us on that bloody and beautiful cross. If you see Jesus now, I invite you, in the spirit of Advent, to say, Come, Lord Jesus. I invite you to lay down your heavy burden and believe afresh in God the Father, in God the Son, in God the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting, because these are the promises. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.